Good morning. I've been asked to read the uh, New Testament lesson this morning, which is from the fourth chapter of Ephesians, beginning with the 17th verse. And that can be found either on page 152 of your pew Bibles or on page 1172. That's Ephesians chapter 4 beginning with verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of your mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which I'm sorry, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who needs. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jeff. Let's pray together as we sit. So, Father, we thank you today that you have gathered us to be your people, and our prayer is that we would hear your word with receptive hearts, fill us with your spirit, and transform us into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. 
Amen. Well, every year a range of different words are removed from the dictionary in 2021. A total of nine words were taken out and classified as archaic or historic or obsolete. But there are also words that are still in the dictionary which we may never hear in everyday speech. Words which, if we use them, they might think that you're a dinosaur or that you belong to the wrong century. Here's the first, a snollygoster. A snollygoster is somebody who is shrewd and unprincipled, especially, we might say, somebody living on Capitol Hill who happens to be a politician. Swaddling is a state of stupor which can't be contained. I think I was zwaddling this morning before my third cup of coffee. What about the verb fujil? Fujil, have you done that this week? Have you been fujiling? It's pretending to work, but actually being on Facebook or distracting yourself with something that you shouldn't be doing. Or ergophobia, the morbid fear of returning to work. Are you feeling ergophobic today as you think of life back in the office tomorrow? Use any of these words later today and people will think, well, what planet is she from? I mean, who are you? What century do you belong to? Because the point is, the words that we speak reflect in everyday life. But the the same is true of the uh, Christian lectionary or the Christian uh, dictionary. So there are words that were used centuries ago maybe even generations ago, that we just don't use all that much now. Words that sound slightly outdated. Here are five words I bet you've not heard recently in Christian podcasts, perhaps in some of the songs that we sometimes sing, or in everyday conversation with your Christian friends. Sanctification wholeheartedness, consecration, holiness, and total obedience to Jesus Christ. These words were mainstream two or three generations ago, but the fact that they're no longer vogue or in the current parlance suggests that the dial has changed in our church lives. We've moved, if you like, from godly discipleship to therapeutic spirituality. So in the church of God today, God is no longer a Lord to obey so much as a friend to comfort. He's no longer there to make me holy, but happy. And if truth be told, I no longer serve him, but he exists to serve me. For the dominant mood in many evangelical churches is comforts, so that Jesus is no longer my teacher, but my therapist, not my Lord, but my lover. And the gospel is not one of repentance for the glory of God, but a gospel of comfort for the fulfillment of self, so that I no longer take up my cross, but my cushion 
And into this, this morning, I'm afraid to say, Paul is about to bring a significant disturbance. Because the mark of authentic Christianity is that it will bring with it a moral revolution at the heart of our lives, a radical revolution that will affect every sphere of our comforts and our lives. Over the last few weeks, we've seen God's great plan for his universe in chapters 1 to 3, the great and glorious news that God has created a brand new humanity through the saving death and triumphant resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He has united us into Christ and included us by grace into this new humanity. It is the most immense privilege in the cosmos. And now as we reach chapter 4, we pivot from God's plan to our response. As we move from what God has done to how we are to respond. And Paul in verse 17 says this. I say and I affirm together with the Lord that in the light of this great plan of God, you no longer walk just as the Gentiles do. And as Paul writes, he's not offering the counsel of a friend or the advice of a counselor or the direction of a pastor, which we can take or leave. This is the command of God's authoritative apostle, underwritten by the risen Jesus himself, affirmed together with the Lord's. And that phrase there in the original, affirmed together, speaks of how what Paul is communicating is underwritten by his own life. And as it's affirmed by the Lord Jesus, it's underwritten by the life of the Lord Jesus as well. For Paul is the exemplar, the walking, talking, living, breathing, visual aid of godly, apostolic, wholehearted gospel conviction. And this is an urgent warning as he insists that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The word Gentiles here simply means the nations. In the Old Testament, there was the nation of Israel called and set apart by God to be holy like a diamond set against the backdrop of the nations who lived in rebellious ungodliness. The nations lived in the rebellion of Psalm 2 and in the darkness of Isaiah 9. So this term Gentiles is shorthand for the rebellious, unsaved world around us. And as Paul this morning calls us to a radical separation from the Gentile, unsaved world, he wants to show us the full horror of how they live, which is the full horror of how we used to live. Paul's aim is to produce a break or a check or to sound the warning siren that as we see these data points in verse 17 to 19, we say to ourselves this morning, I will not, I will not go back to live that way. Verse 18, in the futility of their minds. Darkened, says Paul, in their understanding. Excluded, says Paul, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Because, verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice 
of every kind of impurity with greediness. This section then operates rather like an indictment by the prosecution against the pagan world. And the key phrase is that phrase there, the hardness of their hearts. It's a hardness that is willful, a hardness that is persistent. Because though the world knows that God exists, yet the world says we will not submit ourselves to him. In a parallel text in Romans 1, Paul says this, what may be known about God is plain to them, the pagan world, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. The pagan's heart, says Paul, is hardened. And the Greek word that Paul uses for hardened is really taken from the word marble. It's rock hard. Try later on if you have a marble-countered kitchen trying to put a pin in it or put your fork in it or even taking a hammer to it. It's not porous or malleable. And we see this with our friends and our families. For weeks and months, years and decades, perhaps, we've told them the gospel. But there's no traction, no germination, Shakespeare understands this idea of the marble heart in that awful tragedy that I studied at school, King Lear. In the agonizing storm scene as he rages in horror and terror at the cruelty of his two daughters, Goneril and Regan, who have thrown him out of his own palace, seizing his kingdom from him, he cries out in agony, thou marble-hearted fiend, an impenetrable cold heart. And this fatal heart condition, says Paul, leads on to a range of morbidities. And rather like the water shoot at Dorney Park, uh, we slide down and down into the horror and terror of evil. This hardness of heart, says Paul, leads to a futility of thinking, a darkened mind. So it doesn't matter what Ivy League college we've been to or how bright we might be at school, if you can't see God's, your thinking is futile. And this is ironic because progressive atheists pride themselves on being enlightened. Ever since the Enlightenment and Voltaire and all of that, that the pride has been that we are the enlightened and that we Christians live in the darkness of the Middle Ages. You're so medieval, they say. But Paul turns it around. For as they try to live in a closed universe, cutting out God the creator and cutting out God the judge, refusing God the ruler, their thinking is futile. Of course, they can make medical progress and invent and master nuclear physics and cosmology, but it's all for nothing. That word futile really means empty or worthless. A word borrowed from the Hebrew language, really meaning vapor, like the steam from your kettle. It appears and it's gone. And this word futile is to do with idolatry. For as we say, I will live in my world with myself at center, it's pointless because it's false. 
Take all the great ideologies, be it Marxism or Islam or materialism. Take all the hopes and the dreams, the career plans and the college degrees, the investment portfolios, the fitness goals. Leave God out, and it doesn't matter how great the obituary, how impressive the gravestone, how large the funeral. Your life was futile because you left out God's. In the words of Shakespeare again, it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And Paul goes on in this indictment. Their hearts, he says, are calloused, thickens like the skin on your heel. And when I was at university, the rowers were always the most obnoxious and they were always the most funny in the bar. And they always had the same party trick. They would come along to impress the girls. Their hands were thickened because at five o'clock in the morning they'd been on the river rowing or on the ergometer in the gym. It was thickened and hardened skin. And we'd watch in awe, at least they thought we did, as they, as they took the drawing pin and then stuck it into the skin. They felt no pain. They were so tough. Thickened, hardened. That's the human heart without God. Dead to Christ, like Pharaoh, under the judgment of God. So where does it leave the Gentile world? The answer is under the judgment of God. But the judgment of God, we expect the lightning bolt or the earthquake. But actually, the judgment of God is to allow the world the freedom it craves. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, the lost Enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. And that horrible freedom is there in verse 19, as God allows them to be plunged into sensuality with a continual lust for more. The picture is actually borrowed from the zoo, as the world is driven like animals with a basic instinct, a self-indulgence, that consumes them in a recklessness of life. Augustine makes the point that we are carried through the world by our affections. For what the heart desires, the mind justifies. And here there is no restraint. As without the gospel, these people are driven by desire and appetite and lust and dreams. And as our culture in the West turns decisively against Christianity, this is what we're going to see increasingly, isn't it? This slide into increasing dissipation will gain volition. As we move inevitably from the gay movements to polyamory, to pedophilia, and to bestiality, which has just been legalized in Spain this last month. It is the picture of a sovereign judgment and a rebellious world. The commentator Gill puts it like this, their consciences have been cauterized or seared with a red hot iron, which is the consequence of judicial hardness. So they have lost all sense of sin and no longer feel the load of guilt upon them. The picture 
of a lost world. Well, I want to pause there, and as we reflect on this dark material, can I just say that I think there are probably three dangerous traps for us in our Christian lives. And the first trap is acceptance. Because the new religion of America, in case you hadn't noticed, is equality. And it spawns the three doctrines of diversity, tolerance, and inclusion. It's symbolized in the rainbow flag, which was devised in San Francisco in 1978 by an artist, a gay man, called Gilbert Baker. He was trying to find a symbol for diversity, tolerance, and inclusion, and decided on the rainbow because of the eight colors united in one flag. Pink for sex, red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight, green for nature, turquoise for art, indigo for harmony, and violet for spirits. But the point is that all lifestyles are equal, and we're all still on one spectrum at different points. And Paul teaches no. And yet, as the steamroller of woke descends in our direction, flattening all who dare to stand against it. There will be people within our own sanctuary today who are tempted to give way to the rainbow flag, the manifesto for sexual revolution in subtle ways as we wear the rainbow lanyard at school or work or accept the pronouns that are being forced upon us. Acceptance. The second is arrogance. Those of us who say, well, I'm not going to accept it, may well fall victim to the second deadly trap. As we look out of our church window this morning at this disgusting world around us and get onto our moral high horse and tut-tut and say how outrageous and vile the world is, how righteous we are with our hymn books and Bibles how disgusting the world is. But if God hadn't given us his spirit, this would be us. There is no ground for arrogance. We are different, but we're not better saved by the free grace and incredible mercy of Jesus Christ. Paul's point is that these Christians in pre-Christian Turkey, like we Christians in post-Christian America, are surrounded by the siren voices of a culture that is trying to lure us back. In Homer's classic, The Odyssey, the, the sirens were half bird, half beautiful woman. And their beautiful singing enchanted passengers through the Aegean Sea. It was a stunning noise luring the sailors to their unwitting death on the rocks of the islands. And the problem for us, as we say, that is a world I want nothing to do with, is that the sound of the temptation, if we're honest, is alluring as the voice of Satan through culture says, come back 24-7, Monday to Friday, 
365 days a year, the siren voice of Satan through sin and culture come back. And Paul is determined that we should understand the world from which we have been saved. It's not a Venn diagram in which we live in the middle, part Christ, part world, one foot in the kingdom of Jesus, one foot in the scriptures. Paul's call today is to be in the circle marked Jesus decisively because that's where we've been placed spiritually. We aren't to say when in Rome do as the Romans do. The real Christian is not to say go with the flow here at work. No, says Paul, do not become futile in your thinking. Do not, if he was here today, would he say, buy into tolerance, diversity, and inclusion. Do not get captured by the spirit of our age. Do not, says Paul, collapse before the rainbow flag. Do not give way to the pronouns. Do not be darkened in your understanding. Do not exchange the truth of Jesus for the counterfeit lie. Do not allow your hearts to be calloused and hardened. Do not live for this world anymore. Do not drift away from church. Do not secretly engage in sin. Do not prostitute your lives on the altar of impurity. Be single-minded, focus upon the glory of God, and give your life wholeheartedly to the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason is, in verse 20, the contrast that Christ brings, and it's glorious. As Paul announces, but you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you have heard of him and been taught in him with the truth of Jesus, verse 22, that in reference to your former self and manner of life, you are to lay aside your old self, corrupted with the deceits of lust, renewed with the spirit of your mind. Here then, Paul outlines the shape of real Christianity, our second point on our sheets, disciples of Christ. And it's very strong. And just as the mark of the old life was all around the mind, verse 19, 18, and 17, futile minds and hard hearts, now we move to the new mind, he says. And the whole focus of the new mind is on the word of God the gospel of Jesus, because the point of contact between God and his world is always his word. And look how Paul describes the Christian life. We've learned Christ. We've been taught in him with the truth of him. Actually, the picture is of a school. The Spirit is our teacher. The curriculum is the gospel. And the subject is Jesus well, today in schools, the kids are called students. But in the old days, when I was at school, we were actually called pupils. I hope you were too. The word pupil actually comes from the Latin word pupile, which means miniature. And in the old days, when you were at school, you were a pupil, the miniature, and the teacher was called the master. And the whole idea of education was that you, the miniature, were to grow through a body of knowledge under the mastery of the teacher. That's the picture here. 
where pupils in the school, which is the church, taught by the master, the spirit, about the subject, Jesus, and the aim is growth as we miniature little pupils grow into the full stature of the knowledge of Jesus. Like the Bereans of Acts 17, the model disciples who received the teaching with joy and diligently studied the scriptures to ensure that what they were hearing was true. This is what the word disciple actually means. It means to be a learner. So as Jesus commissions us to go out to the whole world and make disciples, he's actually anticipating a global community of learners. All this then is a correction to our age and to license. So many people in the world go to church almost in a Catholic way for absolution from sin. I'll say the liturgy, sing the hymns, endure the sermon, uh, say the confession in order that the slate is wiped clean so then I can leave the church for another week living the life of Riley. Can I just say that that is not Christianity? Some years ago, uh, there was a flight back from a Billy Graham rally, somewhere I think in North Carolina or somewhere like that. And the plane was full of the people who had been at the rally and Billy Graham was on the plane. One of those who'd been at the rally was drunk and disorderly. And rather caustically, an air hostess who was cynical because she was an atheist walked up and said, so Mr. Graham, is that one of your converts? His reply was instant. He may be one of my converts, but he's not one of Christ's disciples. This actually takes us to what is called the Lordship Salvation Debate. Many people believe that all we have to do to get into heaven is just pray a prayer where we ask Jesus for forgiveness, for the slate to be wiped clean. Gloriously, that is the case. But the purpose of having the slate wiped clean is that I might enter under the lordship of Jesus as one of his disciples. The gospel is a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if, therefore, we're going around saying Jesus is my savior and I'm just one of his converts, without acknowledging that he's a lord and I'm one of his disciples, I have to say to you, I don't think you're Christian. John Flavel, the 17th century English Puritan, put it like this. The gospel offer of Christ includes all of his offices. So a gospel faith receives him to submit to him so as to be received by him, to imitate him in the holiness of his life, as well as to reap the purchases and fruit of his death. It must be an entire receiving of Christ. And A.W. Tozer, another writer from the past, puts it like this. To urge men and women to believe in a divided Christ, that is, a savior but not a lord, 
is bad teaching because no one can receive half of Christ or a third of Christ or a quarter of Christ. We're not saved by believing in an office or a work. We're saved by believing in a person in the fullness of all that he is and all that he did. Because saving faith is bomb under the building faith. If I was to say to you today there is, I'm afraid to tell you, a bomb under the building. And it will go off in precisely 10 minutes, we've just heard from the FBI. The mark that we actually believe that in our heads will be seen as we move at speed with our legs. James puts it like this. We don't just believe. Show me your belief by what you do. It is then not just intellectual assent or creedal affirmation or biblical knowledge, but a personal trust in Jesus that leads to transformation of life. And that leads us to our third heading then, to the godly life in verses 25 to 32 that Paul now has for us. For if Jesus is my Lord, and if I have been included into his people, then the way that we operate together must be shaped by this lordship of Christ. And the reason is that sin is always antisocial. Sin, a small three-lettered word in which I stand in the middle, tall. But sin is me first, you last. And as Paul turns us now to our corporate lives together, as he goes to dishonesty in verse 25 and anger in verse 26 and theft in verse 28 and our mouths in verse 29, the point is that if we're under the lordship of Jesus in a community of unity together under him, sin, if we engage in it, is always antisocial because it will break unity. Let's think about the first area, verse 25 dishonesty. For if we are dishonest, it means we can't trust one another. In verse 25, Paul makes it clear how we are to relate. Verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speaking the truth to each other, for we are members of the body. Yet if we are dishonest, my word is no longer my bond, You can't trust me, so I can't trust you, so we can't relate. But if Jesus has taken up residence in our hearts, it means the Lord of truth is going to clear out dishonesty and lies and slander and gossip. Instead, we will speak the truth to each other and to our neighbor. Why? Because we belong to one another. In verse 26, Paul goes to anger. Be angry, he says, yet do not sin. Because angry Christians are a contradiction in terms. They break the unity of the spirits. Because anger is essentially antisocial. It vandalizes the gospel of love. There's a concrete solution from Paul. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it today. Don't let it fester Verse 27, there's a clear and present danger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. For when we're angry, unity is broken, and the devil sees a chink. 
a half-opened window into which he can enter the church and cause relational chaos. I wonder if there's anyone here today um, falling into this. Theft, verse 28. For he who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor performing with his own hands what is good, that he may have something to share with those who are in need. For once we come to the Lordship of Jesus, we come to the Jesus who gave everything for us. And if the Jesus who saves us gives us everything, we can't be a people who take. And I love the transformation of verse 28. This thief has been converted. He used to use his hands to take as he pickpocketed or engaged in the armed robbery. He used his hands to take. The gospel has saved him. Jesus has taken up residence in his heart. And now the hands that we're taking are hands that are working to give. Verse 29, speech. Paul says, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. That word unwholesome literally means corrupt or rotten. It's a word that was used of spoiled food. Think of the milk that's gone off in your refrigerator or the apple that is rotten at the bottom of the bowl. So what about it? Don't speak words that are insipid or putrid. Don't speak of other people like that verbally or with your fingers on the keyboards or on Facebook or wherever you might be doing it. Because to do that is to vandalize the gospel of love. It is to run against all that Jesus has done for us in uniting us as a people of love. Divisive gossip, slanderous speech in an email written, a Facebook page posted, is washed by the blood of Christ. But behavior like that, says Paul, cannot continue in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. In his classic, The Mortification of Sin, the Puritan John Owen pictures our hearts like a forest of sin. And as the spirit of Jesus begins to move in on our lives, he clears the forest tree by tree, shrub by shrub. This is the great work of Christ in our hearts, progressive sanctification. And we need to cooperate with the spirit as he seeks to clear the forest of sin for the beautiful garden of Jesus Christ. And then Owen has this haunting line, which I lay before you this morning. He says, our aim then must be to kill sin, lest sin kills you. Well, let's imagine Johnny. He's 21 or something like that. He's been single until this age, and the glorious day has just arrived, and he's got married. And what we would say to Johnny in his premarital counseling would be something like, hey, Johnny, new life, new lifestyle. He may not fully understand what the pastor is saying, but marriage has come and gone now. He's three months in, and he is beginning to understand the full implications 
of what the pastor was on about, new life, new lifestyle. In the old days, as a single man, it was every night pretty much over to McDonald's for a quarter pounder. If it wasn't to McDonald's, it was to Domino's for a pizza with his buddies. Now it's couscous salad with the beautiful fiancé that is the wife, Jenny. In the old days, he used to go down to the ball and uh, watch the ball game, uh, down to watch baseball or American football with his buddies. Uh, now he's in to watch Sleepless in Seattle or the horrors of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. It gets worse for Johnny. Uh, the vacation used to be surfing with his friends, the dudes, down in South Carolina. Now it's a vacation with the in-laws. Uh, the beard was slightly out of control before. Now it's gone completely. He used to love wearing the baseball cap that was stained and stank to high heaven from high school. That's never been seen recently. Uh, the flat screen TV where he would watch the game, that's disappeared. Now, if you go to his house, there's a Monet picture there and a scented candle over there. And the sheets in the bedroom that hadn't been washed for, we think, four or five months, if not four or five years, are smelling incredible as the potpourri uh, permeates the room. New life, Johnny new lifestyle, and if he is tempted to go back to the old life, we're going to say, look at the wedding ring, Johnny. Pull out the marriage certificate, Johnny. Look at the wedding photo that she's put on the wall, Johnny. New life, new lifestyle. And that's what Paul is on about as he finishes in verse 32. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, because we're united to the Holy Spirit, as we're united to Jesus Christ. It's like a marriage. And when we do go against the Spirit in sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, says Paul. We do hurt his feelings. The Spirit is not an inanimate force, like the force from Star Wars or like electricity. He's a person because he's God, because he's living in our hearts. I can't grieve the microphone. I can try to grieve the microphone, but it has no feelings. The guys at the back may have a view on it, and they may have feelings, but I can't hurt the microphone, but you can hurt the Holy Spirits because he's a person, because he's God, because he's living in our hearts. So says Paul as we finish verse 32, the templates, the summary, the motto, the memory verse, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ in God has forgiven you. This verse would be a great screensaver. This verse would be a great verse on our refrigerator door. Imagine your marriage, if it was a verse 32 marriage, your family, if it was a verse 32 family, your church, if we were to be a verse 32 church, kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. And to the extent that we find this difficult, Paul does end with the gospel, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. I'm convicted by the material this morning to the point 
where I might be tempted to despair. These are the seven words I need. Just as in Christ, God has forgiven you. He has taken our sin and given us his perfection. And for that reason, we long to be those who grow in the school of Christ, taught by the Spirit, as we grow together in united godliness. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you that Christ has forgiven us. And our prayer is that our hearts would be tender-hearted, loving, and full of the forgiveness of sin. Empower us, fill us, sanctify us, consecrate us, and make us to be the holy people you long for us to be, because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.